Welcome to the Women, Peace and Rights podcast hosted by the Women's Regional Network, WRN. WRN amplifies the voices of conflict-affected women in order to address the interlinked issues of peace and justice, governance and security. The network engages in Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka and East Africa. I am Amalini Tisera, a writer, journalist and editor based in Sri Lanka. I am delighted to host this episode on the discourse on solidarity, violence, children in armed conflict and role of women's peace. Today I welcome Dr. Radhika Kumaraswamy, former United Nations Under Secretary General and the Special Representative on Children and Armed Conflict. Thank you Amalini, thank you for inviting me. I look forward to your questions. Radhika is a lawyer by training and an internationally known human rights advocate. She was the lead author of the global study on the implementation of resolution 1325 published in 2015 and was the UN special rapporteur on violence against women from 1994 to 2003. In Sri Lanka she was the chairperson of the National Human Rights Commission from 2003 to 2006. Thank you Radhika I am really excited to be hosting this conversation with you. I feel like your work and the years of work that you have done are really you know set the conversation on so many topics uh, in what we discuss in Sri Lanka and globally so without further ado just to set the context for this conversation like i've just introduced dr radhika she's got experience that spans decades so we'll be looking at some of that the years of her work in the past as well as this present moment in sri lanka and globally Uh, you've been working in various capacities on gender-based violence for many years and decades I think and I'd like to ask you to reflect on where we are right now I feel like a lot of people would say we've made some progress in terms of awareness and the readiness to at least speak of these issues the fact that there is an open conversation on some of them but at the same time there seems to be more gender-based violence everywhere um what would you say are the kind of significant positive changes since the 1990s and what would you identify as oversights in laws conventions discourse and our solidarity amongst each other thank you amalini well you know when you think of violence against women uh, that's a term that was really coined uh, right up uh, internationally in the 1990s and i think it's really important that women realize uh, how it came to the international arena because it really was not uh, propelled by states this was a movement that came from all parts of the world there were women in latin america fighting against domestic violence and honor killings there were women in southeast asia fighting against trafficking in africa and south africa fighting against rape in india you know things like dowry deaths and other kinds of customary forms of violence and they were initially fighting all these issues in their own sphere and finally the conversation began internationally and all these different struggles and movements came up under the rubric of violence against women at the first conference on human rights in 1993 and then from there it moved and so we must realize that it's rooted in in actually grassroots struggles around the world so what when you ask me how far have we come what has been done when i was special rapporteur on violence against women as i came in i i did a survey and i was focusing on one of the issues i focused on was domestic violence and just to get from countries all 193 what they were doing in that area 
And, you know, there was none. There were uh, not none. There were about two or three that had any legislation or anything they were doing on domestic violence. When I left nine years later, every country except Bhutan had begun something, whether it was a donor program, whether it was law. So in that year, nine years, not because only of me, but a whole group, as I said, all these grassroots movements and a whole global movement, there was an attempt at recognition and trying to make it law. And I think that was an important moment as well, first to name it. So that happened. It named it. And now I think violence against women is used quite broadly and it's at the heart of donor programs and everything else. And it was never even mentioned before 1990s. It was taboo to mention violence against women in the 80s and 70s. It was considered far too uh, sensitive an issue. So it has been named. That in itself is important. Legislation in many countries has been strengthened in all areas, such as rape and domestic violence. In others, it has not. There has been attempts at training the criminal justice process, the prosecutors, the judges, the lawyers, partial success there as well. And there have been programs for victims. The UN Deputy Secretary General runs a huge program on how to help uh, victims and to look at the survivors of violence against women. So these are some, I would say, mainly partial victories that have come from this movement, and we should accept them for what they are. But why is there no total victory? And I think because of society. We have to accept that one of the major problems is society, the superstructure. We still have, in most parts of the world, societies that do not respect women equally, that have cultures of masculinity that are violent, and who, uh, to that extent, the attempts at having the laws, having the frameworks, does not translate into actual action. Benedict Anderson uh, did some work on how people's minds and things change. It'll focus on education and, and the media. And if you look at that in most parts of the world, the curriculum is quite regressive with regard to women. And the media, as you know, is extremely problematic with regard to women. So I think we still have to change how society sees women and how they are represented, stereotypes and subordination. And women who challenge these stereotypes are often at themselves at the receiving end of violence. And I think violence is very much a part of the public imagination, especially in countries that are just emerging from war. But I don't want to sound like all doom and gloom. There are still extraordinary women who break this mold and who do extraordinary things. If somebody in Saudi Arabia, you will have this extraordinary Air Force pilot coming from a society that doesn't even allow women to drive. Or you would have all kinds of extraordinary individual women, which you didn't have so much before, emerging and doing exciting things and creating role models uh, for others. But basically, society will not effectively deal with the violence against women movement until there's a major cultural shift. The victories will always be partial. Thank you. I think while you answering the first half of the question, I was picking at the back of my brain, like, why is everything always partial? Why is there? Why do we come to a point and then everything kind of plateaus off? And I think you answered at the very end, how until we, we have like a giant overhaul in how we see women, see them as equal citizens. Changing the law and changing the conversation will only go so far. To move on to another question, I kind of come up to follow ups of my own. Drawing on your experience as a special rapporteur on children in armed conflict, your work on the 1325 review and recently on the Rohingya crisis, 
Do you see a sense of sameness about context situations over the years? Is it always the same factors and triggers that give rise to things like child mobilization, conflict-related sexual violence, or can you see changes in this over time between the early 90s, early 2000s, and up to now? There's a major change, a fundamental change in the nature of conflict. The 1990s, when a lot of the frameworks that I worked with initially were created in sexual violence and child soldiers, was within the framework of what we would call the African wars, the Sierra Leone, Liberia, uh, Burundi. Uh, there were wars uh, basically with warlords, militias, and having to deal with them and unite them within a country, dealing with demobilizing them, dealing uh, with the sexual violence and conflicts. But beginning in 2000, we have really the so-called war on terror, counterterrorism, which is a whole uh, different kind of war and has a different kind of effect on women. Women are often within communities that are torn apart by this kind of violence. And um, it also is linked to extremist ideology and how women have to cope with children or husbands who may follow those ideologies, as well as ha having to live in these uh, societies. Now, recently, a group of seven women went to Baticolo, and we went to meet um, the wives and mothers of people taken in under the PTA. Um, now, these, we didn't meet the ones who were directly indicted, their wives. We met people whose husbands and sons had just been taken in in kind of a sweep where they may have gone for classes or they may have gone to the training field, but had done nothing. But there was a fear that they were radicalized. So they were just kept in incarceration. And many of them just young, very young, just out of fear that if you let them out, they will be radical. And then the enormous toll on the mothers and the wives are completely ostracized by their communities. You know, can you imagine if your son is taken in for terrorism? Anyone associated with you, somebody from the military might, to some extent, question again. So the terrible reality that they were living, and also the whole approach, especially to children and women who may have participated in this kind of violence, is very different to the one in the African wars. I took part uh, in many more demobilization campaigns there. You basically uh, brought the women in, children, for example, into UNICEF, you trained them, you, though even then they rebelled. Many of them said, we want to be soldiers, we don't. I met a young girl in Nepal who was very angry with me. She said, I don't want to be demobilized. I don't want to go home. My stepmother treats me very badly. But still, they were basically demobilized, given other kinds of programs and allowed to go and settle. But in this case, there's a book written by Carla Power, and she dealt with women foreign fighters, as well as women in the countries, as well as young men and young soldiers, some of them children, who got caught up in this kind of activity and the impact of counterterrorism uh, laws on all. And it became very clear this kind of mass incarceration, putting them away, it just does not work. And, that really the, and she gives examples of what has worked has been kind of mentorship programs, dealing with them as individuals. So it's a whole new world after 2000 and the war and after the attack on the World Trade Tower. And it's a whole new kind of war. And even human rights people were on the back foot 
because you know the president declared a war on terror normally all these were dealt under police laws people terrorists so when he made it a war then it becomes a whole different scheme of international law that packs in and everything the un and everybody does has to change frameworks so it was really a major shock to the system post 2000 and the nature of war has changed dramatically and so that's why in the women peace and security section we have one whole section on violent extremism counterterrorism and things like that which were not there in 1990s just you mentioned the pta and counterterrorism and that has such deep roots in sri lanka such you know problematic roots and one of the most uh, kind of poignant encounters i've had this year is actually meeting one of those women whose husbands were taken in under the pta just for being at the wrong place at the mm-hmm. wrong time so yeah i think and this has come up in so many conversations it's written in the law but what is actually what is the law laying out that allows people to be swept in like this it is to think about thank you for that reflection and so you mentioned like how the the women peace and security document lays out this new paradigm of sorts since that review do you think that uh, discussions on this topic and the document itself where are we now after that document do you feel or has it just led us to into another conversations that go in circles again or do you see any concrete kind of action coming from that well i think to be quite honest i'm not so happy with the direction that the agenda is is completely going to a little disappointed post that report and there is a, a little bit of a divide between the north and the south even though on some points everyone agrees northern countries have really pushed for the issue of fighting sexual violence not that southern countries don't i mean it's very important for them and that as well but there the northern agenda has always been and so the primary agenda of the women peace and security is fighting sexual violence including women in peace processes and including women in the military this is the sort of agenda that is being pushed to the security council at the moment but in my consultations for the global study when i talked in southern countries those sexual violence and being involved in decision making was important for them it was the post conflict recovery that was important the political economy the economic and social issues you know being in debt especially in the post you know the situation we had in sri lanka you know women committing suicide because they're so indebted and this whole idea that do development by making women um, social on an entrepreneur you know not everybody has those skills how do you deal with uh, other women who don't have those skills and so the need to really think about economic and social development behind the kind of livelihood training and entrepreneur model and really have plans and develop post conflict areas i think to that extent it's really important that we bring that conversation into the women peace and security agenda and it is a conversation that the security council and the advocates of this around the security council are not willing to have at the moment so in that sense we have got far there even with the women in peace processes still not many women are being included in peace processes still very few women in the military i'm not saying these other agendas have been met sexual violence we have the icc now having cases but not as many as expected because women are not actually 
coming before the ICC. There are all kinds of issues that are being raised that need questioning, and we need to reflect on it. Now, with regard to sexual violence, why are women not coming? If they're not coming because they're afraid of the adversarial kind of positioning that takes place in a tribunal trial, do we have to find other forms of justice where they will be comfortable and can work properly? And these are you know, questions that many people, especially from the South, are raising. And they're also, as I said, raising issues of political economy, economic and social issues. So I think a need for discussion to so this is a broader agenda than it is at the moment. Thank you. I felt that um, what you mentioned about the need for economic and social development before we get to, or maybe parallel to getting to the bigger topics was so interesting because I think uh, that really rings true for Sri Lanka and here where there is so much that needs to be secured in terms of economic and social rights that mm-hmm. are in- inherently kind of linked back to what the conflict left behind. You know, that can't be answered without maybe answering all these questions at the same time. So mm-hmm. yeah, that, that was really interesting. I want to say, it, well, it may not be my final question because I'm thinking through so many of the things you said, so I might. So considering this moment in time in Sri Lanka, we are seeing kind of the continuation of women's movements for justice in terms of things like uh, post-war justice and reparations, things like personal law reform. And then we are on top of that now seeing a wave of protests for economic and political justice in the context of 2002. And I was wondering, what are some areas in civil society, especially women's peace networks, what are some areas that we should be focusing on? What are some ways to make an impact that we are maybe not trying hard enough on, or maybe things that we have completely kind of missed out in the journey here and in the journey forward? Well, I think economic, we really have to not lose sight of the main dilemma and the ball at this point, which is economic and uh, social issues, given especially for Sri Lanka. Given the crisis we're going through and the remedies that are being suggested, remember austerity, that there's going to be a recession, there will be IMF conditionalities. So the need to make sure that um, individual women and children are protected in this climate and made basically to allow to survive in a life that uh, is meaningful to some extent. And we have to make sure, for example, advocate for food distribution networks. So you don't know what will happen. Sri Lanka is not the only country. Other countries may also face this. The need for really have in place a food security framework and um, we should be advocating for that. We should be uh, advocating also in the terms of health and medical capacity and building, again, at the community level, frameworks for to deal with these issues in, a, in t- times of uh, scarcity. And of course, education. So the social protection in the face of all this happening is something women have to unite around. Even the IMF negotiations that are going on, the need to bring to bear the fact that the IMF conditionalities should not affect women's economic and social survival of communities and individuals. So I think I would say that at this point, mainly the women's groups have been focused on advocating on issues relating to violence against women, and that's understandable given the kind of epidemic we're having. 
But I think for the next year or two, they really have to focus on economic and social rights. I mean, and I think that that voice is very important because the countervailing voices that you would hear that come from the managers and the planners in our society would be not to look at the individual woman and the individual child. So somebody, we have to voice those concerns openly and have these food distribution networks and all in place as soon as possible. Thank you. Just to kind of wrap up with the one last question. I was asked this question once on a, a discussion that when the person said, you know, in Sri Lanka, are there enough women in peace building work or why don't women do peace building work? And for me, I was floored for a second because some of the most impactful work I know in peace building has been done by women be outside of the spotlight, the media spotlight and things like that, that continues today. Those women are, who are continuing to work through this crisis as well. I was wondering if you had um, any reflections on kind of the role that women in Sri Lanka have played in peace building work and in community work, observing and since you've been working and up to now. Yes, well, first, if you want Sri Lanka, the, we had in the 80s the Women for Peace movement, which was across all communities and ethnicities. You know, Kumar Jawadner was one of the leaders of it. Uh, and women came together. Then things the Sri Lanka Accord came and things got all confused with the JVP uprising and all that, and it, it dissipated. But people don't want to say this anymore because the new um, frameworks are about women entering the military and doing well in combat and armed combat. There's a sort of a fetish around that now in movies and everything. But research shows that, by and large, women in, in conflicts tend to be more for peace. I mean, it has been true since the beginning of the 20th century. And they tend to be peacemakers and peace builders. So that's an important thing to harness in a society doing uh, peace building. And I think in Sri Lanka, women have been at the forefront. And women, a lot of women's groups I know have uh, been at the forefront in peace building and peace work in the North and the East, both people from the North and the East and people from the South going up uh, into the North and East. In fact, uh, I think uh, so much going on to some extent, but they're not supported, as I said, by a infrastructure or a plan or something that moves beyond livelihood training or peace building of that effect. But the other question, of course, that raises is, can women break the barriers of the nationalist discourse, the ethnic and kind of populist discourse that are there for both Tamils and Sinhalese? that have conditioned many of their mindsets? And can they break that to create consensus? And in that sense, I think women or like the rest of their community do have that uh, mindset. But in my work in Sri Lanka, from Women Peace, before I went to the UN and now that I've come back from the UN, that women do tend to cross those barriers more easily than men in different spheres. And uh, I think we should harness that. And Women for Peace kind of movement would be excellent at this point in the conflict areas. That's not to say that are not, well, women are also very much strongly nationalist. That's true. But the research actually does show that in every conflict around the world, that if any survey has been done, women are much more for peace agenda than men. Thank you. I feel like that's 
Yes, I just want to say thank you so much, Akradika, for your time today and for sharing all this. I feel like 25 to 30 minutes is probably not enough to discuss the kind of expansive work that you have undertaken in your time across various countries and various capacities. Is there anything that you would like to add or just to kind of leave our listeners with? No, not, not at all. It just, but except to think that we're going through a terrible crisis post-pandemic. And we may have to rethink a lot of our assumptions, our movements and advocacies. And that's why I recently built, um, at least to South Asia, rebuilt my friendships and networks across South Asia so we can learn from each other. And I think it's really time to sort of bond and, and work together with people across boundaries, within boundaries. It's going to be a difficult time. Thank you. I think uh, that lesson on learning and relearning new things to adapt to the context is always correct. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Women, Peace and Rights podcast produced by the Women's Regional Network. Thank you once again to Dr. Radhika Kumaraswamy for her time and reflections during this session. WRN would be happy to hear from those of you listening in. Please do write to media at womensregionalnetwork.org. And do connect with us through Twitter. Uh, the handle is at WRN News. Mm-hmm.